Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 30th of September. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Minister for Agriculture will be in County Louth today. Charlie McConnellogue will meet local farmers at RD Mart. It's as part of the CAP consultation process ahead of the 1st of January next year when Ireland's CAP strategic plan must be submitted. The agreement provides for voluntary capping of direct payments at €100,000 with member states also free to reduce payments above €60,000 by up to 85%, which is a a policy I fought very hard for. Internal convergence of payments will continue, with each entitlement value to reach a minimum of 85% of the national average value by 2026, and a mandatory redistribution of 10% of direct payments funding to small and medium-sized farmers is also provided for, but with the derogation from member states where they can demonstrate that their redistribution needs can be satisfied by other measures in Pillar 1. One big question farmers will have for the Minister will be about the redistributive measures he plans to pursue within the flexibilities provided and there is some concern. The agreement provides for voluntary capping of direct payments at €100,000 with member states also free to reduce payments above €60,000 by up to 85%, which is a a policy I fought very hard for. Internal convergence of payments will continue with each entitlement value to reach a minimum of 85% of the national average value by 2026 and a mandatory redistribution of 10% of direct payments funding to small and medium-sized farmers is also provided for, but with the derogation from member states where they can demonstrate that their redistribution needs can be satisfied by other measures in Pillar 1. Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy. Would you get back up the yard, Deputy Carthy? The Minister clearly not entertaining Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy during July's oral questions in the Dáil. Uh, It's pretty rich coming in here now and making a big song and dance about the Dáil, being able to make decisions of this when you actually wanted Europe to make these decisions and didn't want to have the flexibility didn't want to have the flexibility for us and for me as Minister and to, to work and consult with farmers right across the country and to have that flexibility at national level. You wanted to cut that off at the pass at European level. And now you have the chance you to went now, to now you come Europe in here fought against now you come in here talking about actually Gaul, uh, and engaging and in consulting, which is you mean it's, it's total hypocrisy. Naturally Charlie McConnellogue says he did not fight against the interests of farmers in Donegal 
and I will consult widely with farmers on how we best apply this flexibility to address these issues at national level. As said at the start, uh, that consultation is underway and uh, the Minister will be in RD today. The Minister is on uh, the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, Minister McConnell Logan. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Apologies Thank to you and our listeners. Our files got a little bit mixed up there and we didn't hear what Matt Carthy was saying to you back in July and the concerns that he has uh, about convergence uh, and uh, the fact uh, that this has been kicked to touch in his eyes uh, for uh, some time. Uh, what will you be saying to farmers when you meet them today about what small farmers in particular can expect? Yeah, well, uh, it's, I'm, I'm meeting with, with farmers today in, in, in RD Mart at half 12, and um, uh, obviously we have to work within COVID compliance at the moment, Michael, so I'm encouraging any farmers that intend to go to make contact with the local farm organisation in advance or indeed with the Mart so that we ensure that the numbers are are within within guidelines, um, but I am en- engaging right around the country at the moment with farmers to ensure that they they're feeding in very strongly and directly to how we frame the schemes and how we also make the key decisions uh, with regard to the cap for the next number of years because it is so central to farm incomes. Indeed, it's it amounts to the net farm income for 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 uh, your average beef and and sheep farm, for example. I did fight hard at European level to ensure that we would have as much decision-making capacity as possible at national level in terms of putting our own national plan together. Obviously, that plan has to be compliant with the overall European plan. But an issue such as, for example, the, the, the maximum payment per farmer, which, as I, you I indicated there in the, yeah. the clip you played, I fought hard to ensure that we would have the capacity to be able to apply to, to apply a maximum cap as low as €66,000. That's a decision that I'm engaging with farmers around. Um, also, uh, how far we go in convergence. Again, that's a decision that uh, or a, a decision that does have an impact on uh, family farms, and therefore it's one that's important. It's made nationally, and uh, uh, that's something that I'm consulting on now. There is an obligation. Is it a case of damned if you do and damned if you don't? Uh, if uh, bigger farmers are losing more than they feel they're entitled to to subsidise smaller farmers, undoubtedly they'll have a, a gripe, uh, and smaller farmers uh, will feel it's unfair. If that doesn't happen. Well, it's not even as straightforward as that because within each farm size and each farm type, the, the impact of convergence has very varying uh, impacts. So basically, each farmer gets paid uh, a certain under their basic payment, a certain um, payment per hectare, uh, which is uh, which is called their entitlement value. Some farmers have a higher entitlement value per hectare. Some values have a some farmers have a lower value entitlement per hectare, and it's based on production back in the early two thousands. So there is a convergence process underway where those payments per hectare will all converge over a period of time towards what will end up being a, a national average and a, a similar payment for everyone. Mm. The uh, question at stake is how quickly we, we do that process. But you do have some small farmers, for example, that would have higher payments per hectare mm. and would, would would see their their income actually um, reduced by, uh, by, by convergence. And likewise, you can have some larger farmers who are in smaller payments per hectare and could see their payments increase. So, it's, And likewise, again, among different farming types, some farmers have lower entitlements, some farmers have a higher entitlement. So it's not, it's not uniform, but it is clear that it does have obviously impacts um, in that some farmers' payments would go up and some would go down. Um, overall, the, uh, this cap will be a stronger one financially. We fought to uh, get a narrow increase mm. at European level in the cap, and also I'm finalising now 
the co-funding aspect that will come from the national government with the Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath, and I'm, I'm very confident we will have a, a stronger cap overall and much more funding overall. Okay, um, t- 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 tell us more about that. Perhaps will, have, will have different imp- impacts than at farm level. I'm sure farmers would like to hear more about that, Minister, in a moment. Uh, but uh, tell us uh, more uh, about uh, the uniformed approach that could possibly be taken because uh, there was an attempt to do that in Slovakia, wasn't there, uh, where they tried to pay 150 euro for the first 28 hectares to all farmers but there was a backlash and then that resulted in just 50 per acre yeah well uh, actually a, a lot of a good number of european countries have already actually gone to a, a standard payment per per hectare um but but we, we we have been took a more graduated approach to that the decision we'll have to make now in the next number of weeks is whether we we go to the 85 percent which is required or whether we go further i think the direction of travel is clear in that it will, it is without doubt going to an average payment, and it certainly will reach that at the at the next cap. I think there's little doubt about that. But that's why it's really important that we do engage and listen to the farmers who are affected and concerned, and that we do consult strongly as part of that. And that's why I'm, I'm having this meeting in RD today to to talk to farmers across Louth to get the voice of Louth farmers to make sure that it's clear in the process, because every county is very different. Uh, and it needs to be heard in relation to an advance of actually making making these final decisions. As things stand, uh, you've uh, a cap uh, amount of uh, about a billion uh, short of uh, about 25 million compared to the 1.2 billion last time. Is that right? So uh, uh, the, basically the cap is broken down into two, two pots, a pillar one pot and a pillar two pot. Um, the pillar one is the standard direct payment to farmers. That's down just 2% on previous, uh, whereas the pillar two pod is actually up about 20%. And overall, the uh, the cap at European level is just marginally up in the previous number of years. There has been undoubtedly significant pressure on the European budget, um, whereby there has been you know pressure from other sides to, uh, at European level to squeeze the cap budget. We fought very hard to seek to maintain it. And indeed, the Taoiseach fought a very hard battle at the, at the EU Council last summer in order to actually ensure there would be a narrow increase in it. And uh, importantly, uh, in terms of the national co-funding, we will strongly support it too. Um, this year, for example, Michael, um, because the, the cap is delayed um, and wasn't agreed at European level until mm. two years after it should have been, we've continued the existing schemes coming out of the previous cap. And uh, the government, in order to do that, delivered an 11% increase in our budget this year for the department of, for my department in, in order to be able to ensure that it could run all of the schemes at maximum participation level and maximum payment level to ensure that we could actually underpin farm incomes. So that's a reflection of the, of the commitment that is there from, by the government uh, to actually support farm families. Um, but uh, what we're doing now is putting together the cap plan, which will run up to the end of 2027. So it's really important that it's structured in a way that works for for farmers, farmers that delivers in terms of their income and also delivers, of course, in terms of the policy objectives of producing quality, healthy, safe food and also really importantly in terms of the environmental uh, aspects and, and objectives of CAP and in terms of the, uh, making our contribution to climate change and indeed leading out in the biodiversity challenge. So uh, it's, it's important because it will frame agriculture for the next number of years that farmers are very central to how it's put together and that's, um, that's, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm meeting with farmers across Louth today uh, to discuss the, the, the views of farmers in, in the county. Okay, uh, and that will happen online, is it Minister? 
No, it's happening in RD, Mark mm. um, uh, and uh, uh, Michael at half twelve today. And uh, uh, any farmer that'd like to attend should should work contact their either their local farm organisation or indeed um, the, the RD Mart itself to give uh, advance notice just so that we can manage and make sure that the numbers are manageable and within COVID guidelines. Okay, uh, well, uh, your constituents in Donegal not wonder why you're not at uh, the Dáil uh, at Leinster House instead of RD. Well, I'm in Leinster House this morning and, and will be and for the next couple of hours before I leave for RD. And um, uh, that's obviously a balance. Uh, it's really important that you do the work in the department and, and in the doll, um, Michael. But it's also really important that you engage with the people who your policy most affects, mm. in, in this instance, farmers. Obviously, I think you're probably referring in relation to the to the, to the issue. Yeah. yeah, so that there has been a presence outside the doll each day for the last, uh, last month um, from homeowners across Donegal. Um, and they will be there again today, and I certainly will talk to them before uh, before I depart for for RD. Um, and obviously, you know the the, the issue of uh, homeowners who have their who who are affected by defective blocks. Many have their houses will have to be completely demolished and, and returned. It's an issue I've been fighting hard on for many years and representing the homeowners. It's coming an important moment now with the working group completing its work. Um, but there has been a very strong commitment there from the Taoiseach and the, the Minister for Housing, uh, Dara O'Brien, and the government colleagues in relation to ensuring that the issues with the scheme are addressed and indeed to ensuring that homeowners have been a key central to the working group that has been doing the work in terms of identifying the issues. So over the next week or two now, uh, government will finalise the scheme and I look forward mm. to working with me. Will you support a, a scheme that sees a cap of €350,000? Well, there hasn't been any, uh, the working group report hasn't been published yet. Uh, my, my objective, Michael, is to ensure that uh, homeowners get to fully replace their homes that they, they, they built and that they're mm-hmm. uh, already paying mortgages for um, and that they're fully replaced That's uh, uh, and that the folk, uh, full and reasonable cost of that is... 100% redress, in other words. Yeah, yes, 100% redre- redress. And will you support anything less than that? Uh, that's my, my. I will be working to deliver that, and, and I'm confident, um, given you know the, the the work that's been undertaken, and indeed the understanding is there that we can get an outcome, a, a very good outcome. And my full uh, objective over the next week or two weeks is to deliver a scheme which actually is acceptable to homeowners and works for homeowners and allows them to get on with their lives. Okay, it appears uh, from. Uh leaks that uh, the cap is going to be set at between three hundred and fifty and five hundred thousand. Uh, there's there's nothing agreed yet, Michael. Um, uh, the, the working group is report is uh, which the homeowners are central to will be uh, published in the next day or two, and then cabinet then and government will reflect and decide on that over the next number of weeks. This, this is all still to be decided. But will you accept what cabinet decides, uh, or will you be insisting on 100% redress? I'll, I will be working with my cabinet colleagues uh, to get a 100% redress and to get the full cost of people having replacing their homes covered. And, and that's what I'll be working on over the next week or two. And I'm confident we will get a good outcome. And if that is not the outcome, what will your position be, Minister? Well, uh, I'm absolutely I'm confident that it will be. And my objective is and my, and my focus is on working to ensure that that's the case, not, not any alternatives. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us. Half past twelve at RD Mart today. If uh, farmers do wish to meet with you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the program uh, this morning. That's the Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnell. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the voice of uh, Fergus O'Dowd was heard loud and clear yesterday in the Dáil debate on data centres and whether there should be a cap on the amount of centres that there are in the country. There's currently 70. Uh, by 2030, with uh, another five or six data centres, uh, we could be looking at them using between 30 and 70% of all of the electricity that is generated in this country. In the meantime, this could result in power cuts and blackouts and that could happen as soon as this year. But the Social Democrat motion to put a cap to limit the amount of data centres in this country was strongly resisted by Fergus O'Dowd. I'd like to strongly oppose this motion. I believe it is, by its nature, it is it wants to stop the clock and stop development in our country. There is clearly an issue about energy supply into the future. But I think that the research that the Social Democrats alleged they have done has been very, very poor and indeed needs to be informed far more constructively. There you go. That's uh, Fergus O'Dowd uh, and he was talking about the IT sector employing 140,000 people, 20,000 people in data centres. Very, very important. Another local TD was also heard in the Dáil yesterday, Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster, who didn't agree with Deputy O'Dowd. You and your government are sleepwalking our country into a catastrophe. In the last week, we've heard from Dr. Patrick Bresnahan from Maynooth University, who warned that if all the proposed data centres go ahead, they would account for up to 70% of our grid capacity by the end of the decade. And in the same week, Tánish Leo Vradker sounded like a spokesperson for big tech when he was quoted in the papers announcing plans to update our data centre policy having been directed to do so by Google, Amazon and Microsoft. If it wasn't so farcical, it would be so damaging to our country. We'll come back to Imelda Munster in a minute, but let's go back to Fergus O'Dowd because this was a Social Democrats' motion and Fergus O'Dowd was very critical of the Social Democrats who he felt hadn't researched the subject. So take your head out of the sand and look at the facts. Yeah, 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 look at the facts because you want to put the clock back. You want us all to go back to using the... I didn't interrupt you, sir. I did not interrupt you. So please, please shout somewhere else. The point is that we have to examine this issue fairly and objectively. You must talk facts, not fiction. We must deal with the energy supply issue. And Social Democrats are very disappointed in your your one-sided, illogical uh, attack on a modern economy that is providing hundreds of jobs. Uh, I will in in my time. I know I am, but uh, I have to get my points in. Thank you, Chairman. If you have to go over time. All right, there you have it. (laughs) Fergus O'Dowd, uh, well over time, uh, but he had to get his points in. The points that you didn't hear there from the Social Democrats across Gary Gannon saying uh, that he should remember all of this when the lights go out. Fergus O'Dowd was saying, you want to put the clock back uh, and get us all back to the dark ages. And Gary Gannon was saying, tell that to your constituents. Jennifer Whitmore said, there's an energy crisis and we're facing blackouts uh, and go back to your constituents when they're in the dark. Uh, Fergus O'Dowd again saying, uh, we're talking about a modern economy and indeed the hundreds of jobs in his hometown of Drogheda. And the question of water use. I know you have old cars and you have new cars. You have uh, gas guzzlers and you have modern, um, modern cars being produced every day. The same with data centres. You talk about water, water use. Well, here's a figure you should have found out. And I found it out because Amazon applied in our town for a data centre. That the equivalent, the equivalent of eight households 
per annum water use is what the Amazon data center in Drogheda will use. So, it all, so there are huge differences in old technology and new technology. And there are huge changes coming about. And also companies like Amazon, who've invested in Drogheda, are also attracting in other industries. We recently had new jobs for Drogheda, where a very attractive location for inward investment, that a global leader in the circular cloud and sustainable data center infrastructure is now based in our town. So one data center is attracting new recyclable uh, circular economy industries into our economy. Good news for Drogheda. Jobs for Drogheda said Fergus O'Dowd, the local Fine Gael TD, the local Sinn Féin TD, Imelda Munster, didn't see it that way. There are two data centres planned for the IDA business park in Drogheda. This is a business park that was supposed to provide 5,000 jobs for Drogheda. These two data centres will provide anywhere between 60 and 100 jobs. Uh, But they will use as much water as Kilkenny City and one and a half times the energy use of Kilkenny. And there's actually a third data centre um, in, in the planning for our town. The Stellene water plant outside Drogheda is already struggling. We have had water shortages, and you'll remember them, they were on the media, on the news every night, and significant problems with water infrastructure in the Drogheda area. Irish water reps actually told me on site at the Stellene water plant several years ago that the capacity isn't there, long before there was three data centres in the planning process. The applications for these um, are, are not providing solutions for what will happen during periods of low rainfall or when we've hot weather, which means data centres need, need more water for cooling or at a, time when, uh, at a time when water is already scarce. But the fact that local authorities responsible for giving planning permission don't take account of any of this is completely reckless. Now, I said earlier that Thornishta was out talking on behalf of the tech companies and re-changing our policy. There's obviously others there behind you too that's in favour of that. This madness has to stop. Deputy O'Dowd, when the lights go out in Drogheda and people are forced to wait for water tanks, you can give your speak then because you'll be directly responsible for it. Minister, before it's too late, put an end to this madness. Do something before it's too late. Thanks, Deputy Paul Donnelly. <laughs> the deputy is wrong. You can hear Fergus O'Dowd saying, uh, Melda Munster saying, the deputy is a spoofer. And we'll hear from Melda Munster and Fergus O'Dowd after this break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you heard before the break, Fergus O'Dowd of Fine Gael was saying Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster was wrong. Imelda Munster was saying Fergus O'Dowd was a spoofer. Let's hear from both of the TDs now. And a very good morning to both of you. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Fergus O'Dowd, you're convinced that data centres in Drogheda will not mean a shortage of water or a shortage of electricity that the lights won't go out and that people won't be able to go about their daily business. But the opposite, in fact, you contend uh, that all of that will continue as normal and that there'll be hundreds of jobs locally. Yes, uh, in the long run, that's what I'm hoping for, Michael. First of all, it's a 900 million investment over the two plants, which is huge. At the moment, there are about 300 people working there in construction. The construction phase is about two years. And in the long term, in the plant itself, it's expected, and we don't have an exact figure, I think around 50, 60 jobs. Uh, but already there are spin-offs because the data centre is in Drogheda. 
and earlier this month actually uh, there's a new factory coming to Drogheda and it's based it's a Silicon Valley company and basically what they're going to be doing uh, they're going to use sustainable data centre infrastructure recycling so that's already an investment in our town because the data centres are coming here and also I'm aware of other interests as well so I think the key point and the point that Amelda was making, first of all, with the water, she's absolutely wrong on that, appallingly wrong. It's like if you have two cars, one is 20 years old, one is new. The new car uses much better technology. And the Amazon Centre, data centre for Drogheda, is not going to use water at all. Mm. It's not the, the gas guzzler, as you yeah. called the other car in the doll. Yes, yeah. let me go to yeah. Imelda Munster. You're out of date yeah. and uh, obviously not up to speed on the new technology involved in these data centres. I'd reject that completely, Mike. I mean, it's not just me that's saying it. Airgrid have come out and expressed oh. serious concerns. The commi- com- Commission for Regulation of Utilities has come out and expressed serious concerns. The academics Um, have come out. I mean, in relation to water, um, we know that data centres require huge quantities of water. And Dr. Patrick Breslin from Maynooth University told the Oireachtas Climate Committee this week that the average data centre uses 500,000 litres per day, but that that can increase to up to 5 million litres per day during hot periods in the summer. Now, if you look at the CSO, the stats of the average domestic water use per day is 360 litres per day, which is 134,000 a year. So Fergus is totally wrong. His eight houses might use the same amount of water in a whole year as one data centre does in one day. And everybody is saying, and I mean, I never, I've never experienced anything like that debate yesterday. Even the last Cian Corlea, um, Mike, Deputy Catherine Connolly, got up and she's someone always very polite and articulate mm. and she said she's never been so frightened as she was over the stance of Deputy O'Dowd. She didn't remember that. Deputy O'Dowd's yeah, name, I don't she think. Uh, but, uh, yeah, but she yeah. wasn't even there. The she, 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 she wasn't she there. Listening. She was she listening to it yeah. in her office. She yeah, well, that's, I think, I think, uh, can, Mark, can I reply to that? Yeah, let Fergus O'Dowd come in there. Let Fergus O'Dowd come in there. Well, the only thing we can deal with here are facts, not opinions. Exactly. And the fact is, exactly, exactly, Melda. And the fact is you haven't looked at the planning application for Amazon, nor have you contacted the company, because they would tell you exactly what I'm saying, is that they do not use water to cool their plant. Full stop. What about so the electricity? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. And Michael, if you have any doubt about what I'm saying, separately, if you, and I think Imelda wouldn't disagree with this, if you contact the company and contact the planning department after this debate, Amazon to find out which of us are actually telling the truth here, because... Yes. What, what, who's spoofing now is one deputy in the monster. No, everybody She's else. The house. only one that can your yesterday. All the other government TDs were almost in hiding on this issue because they know not it's at all, explosive. Not at all. They know it's explosive, but you went in and oh, you looked like you were doing the bidding for Amazon, the same as the T-shirt or the Tornister, rather. <coughs> doing the bidding for these high-tech companies to the death I am delighted. To the I am delighted. Of your own people. Imelda Monster, though, do you not want the jobs? Attacking jobs. Attacking jobs, Imelda. What about the jobs, Imelda Monster? Right, I'll tell you. What about the jobs, Imelda? I'll tell you what about the jobs. Those Amazon centres take over the entire um, IDA park, right, which is was always hoped would... 
cater for about 5,000 jobs. Between them, between the two of them, you'll have a maximum of 60 to 100 jobs. <coughs> That's not the, that, the fact that, that we're going to be running empty for and water shortages. I mean, yeah, not at any water cost. Water shortages not at any cost. You're talking, not the, I think the, not. These jobs, not at any cost. There's between 60 and 100 where you could, if we had proper <coughs> FDI, if your government got their act together, you could have 5,000 jobs for Drogheda, but you, don't, you haven't done that over the years. Instead, no, you're, you're playing up... Let Fergus O'Dowd come back in there now, yeah, please, Melda. Melda, again, facts jobs, are but facts. Take our resources uh, for water and... Melda, let him, Melda, let him Melda, speak. The there. fact is, let's, I want clarity on the water issue. Michael, I'd be happy if you would uh, investigate that in your, in your spare time today or tomorrow to come back and one would have clarity on that or Friday, if you have it. Mm. Uh, so that's Mike the first Ergrid The second point is, hold on a second. You and second po- the second point is, uh, sorry, Melda, the second point is that that site under the Noah Road was vacant for 15, maybe 20 years. Because you you're given out that somebody is spending nine One at a time. Let, let Fergus O'Dowd, Melda, sorry. You're given out that, uh, that, uh, that one of the biggest companies in the world has its flag in Drogheda, and it's, there are over 300 people working there today. You don't like that, you don't want that. No, no. So it's the question about the park being full is a fair point. And, and you'll be happy to confirm, and Michael, you can ask her if it's true or not, that the government has bought, the idea, have bought 40 acres in North Rota to make sure that there's more land. And they're also putting in that, Amelda, is a fintech advanced building solutions for our town. And fintech is based on, guess what? using data. So we are really getting there. We're OK, let Imelda Munster come back now. Let, let Imelda speak now. Of the course. point is, there's 70 data centres already in Ireland, right? You have Dublin is the largest data centre in the entire Europe, right? A data centre is purely a physical storage centre for online and digital, you know, aspects of, of our world, if you like. That's what it is. It's a storage centre. We're using our entire industrial park to get, gain long-term 60 to 100 jobs. But the, the, the worst impact of it all is the, what it will do to our resources. We, we have risk, and again, and again, and Fergus hasn't mentioned the fact that Airgrid have come out, that the CRU have come out, yep. and academics have come out and said we face rolling blackouts and water shortages. Water yeah. yeah, well, and Professor we Bresnahan, as you said, said that we're talking about oh, pr- between 30 and 70% of the electricity produced mm-hmm. in this country uh, being needed to supply power to these yeah. centres by 2030. That's it, in nine years from now. Uh, the solution seems to be to be burning coal and the like, uh, if there is a solution, because the prospect of blackouts and power cuts seems very real, the experts are saying. For example, do you d- yeah, dismiss no, that? No, that? That is what is absolutely correct. And um, there's Professor Brian O'Gallagher, uh, who is the, the subject, uh, he's, he's a professor in Cork on this issue, said yesterday that, in fact, at the highest demand level, that data centres will, in fact, be somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of our demand. But, but whatever it is, it is there. But, but it's 12 percent now, so, and it's going... Uh, no, no, it is, of course. I mean, what we, heard from Anu, what we heard from Anuth was 28 percent, but possibly yeah. as much as 70 yeah. percent. Well, look, can I make the answer there is not to stop development. The answer is to increase supply. And the key point here, and I'm talking about, uh, I'm, I'm talking about what the IDA said, 
that all large multinationals, which obviously Imelda doesn't want in this country, oh, with do, data centres, have committed to becoming fully renewably powered. And on the question of the Drogheda plant, it will be 100% renewable energy by 2025. So that's how you deal with the energy use of a data centre. You make them supply their own energy, and that's what they're doing. And, and that's the way it should be. Mm. But if you listen to what Amelda wants, she doesn't want Google. She well, doesn't she's, want Microsoft. She's, she, she doesn't want Amazon. She wants. She wants. Well, Amazon. let's hear. Let's hear what she wants. What do you want, Amelda? No, we don't want. It's not that we don't want Amazon, as we said. As I oh, said, you it's already. Fergus, would you catch us the phone and stop interrupting? <laughs> oh, we already said, the facts are. We already said there are seventy data centres in this country currently. <clears throat> There's two more coming to Drogheda, and they've actually signalled interest in the development of a third data centre. It's disproportionate, the amount of data centres we have on the East Coast. Your government's already talking about um, getting water from Shannon over to the East Coast. The problem here is, Mike, there's no national policy on data centres, and it's council by council give individual planning permission, and they don't take into account any of the, the resources, whether there's going to be low periods of rainfall. Okay, so, so what, fact, do, what, what do you want? Do you, do you want? We want, no, we, I'll tell you what we yeah. want. We want a moratorium yeah. on any more data centres until an impact assessment is carried out. So no what more. What we don't want to see, what we don't want to see is rolling blackouts and water, shor- water shortages. That's what we don't want to see. No and more academics, air grid No more data centres until until there's an impact on uh, an impact assessment carried out. So how long are you talking about that moratorium? What does that mean? Well, as long as it takes to figure out that and to first off, you have to have a national policy. You can't have local authorities given planning permission without. A, any regard for the infrastructure locally. And it's interesting to see there were no objections from Irish Water to these data centres. None whatsoever. It's like a, Well, maybe that no tells evil. its own story, does it no not? Evil. Hear no evil. Okay. No, I'll tell you why. Because we were out about three, four years ago at the Staline Water Plant. They invited mm. all elected reps out. And I went out and we spoke to Irish Water engineers and that they said the capacity isn't there. That was three or four years ago. That was long before there was talk of data. Okay. The capacity Again, Michael, okay, come back to Fergus O'Dowd. And the whole spike bands Okay, Fergus O'Dowd now. The, the key mistake Imelda is making is that she's like giving out about old cars from what we're building in Drada is a new car, a new electric vehicle yeah, that doesn't use... electric vehicles. Oh, no, uh, sorry. People won't oh, be able no, to no, use no, them Please, Amelda, you're, you're, okay. uh, there is, there well, is no uh, doubt d- d- that, that older data centres are uh, unacceptably high users. Okay, you, 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 okay, just let me interject for one second because I've only got about 30 seconds left, Fergus. So you, sure. you say that's the case, Amelda says that's not the case, but she's saying, well, why not test it? Why not uh, carry out a study into this and come up with a, a plan? Is that not a, a reasonable position to well, take? Well, look at the family application. Uh, that, that's what you do. That's how you get. But she's practice. saying, don't do it. Market. Don't no, do no, it on I a county agree. by county basis. She's I, saying, I, I have a national policy uh, and yeah, no. uh, one that that is fed well, through she, knowledge uh, about the impact of these things. Yeah. Well, I, 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 you see, the point is, Michael. The reason we want data centres is because you use the internet. I do. We pay our bills on data. We use our phones. 
We use our computers. We watch Netflix. That just doesn't happen in the air. It happens in the cloud. It happens in the data center. And the more we develop our economy, the more people that want to use data and businesses come into our country. Okay. That's why 150,000 people implied in the IT. Okay. So uh, the future... Uh, Amanda Monster says there's a great risk to that approach. You're saying is worth taking that risk. We'll leave it there. Thank you both indeed because we're not going to reach agreement on this. But thanks uh, to both of the TDs uh, from Louth and East Mead, Fergus O'Dowd of Fine Gael and Sinn Féin's Amanda Monster. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to uh, the story of Grace. Uh, the story of Grace has uh, been running for years and continues to be investigated. The Irish Examiner has been telling us indeed uh, for years about Grace, an intellectually disabled uh, person who spent 20 years in a foster home uh, and indeed uh, continued to, to live in that same foster home seven years after allegations of abuse were made against the foster parents. Let's uh, speak to Daniel McConnell, who's political editor with the Irish Examiner. Good morning to Daniel, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You've been looking at uh, the interim reports uh, from the Commission uh, investigating this, the Farley Commission. Uh, The reports run to 800 pages, so no doubt there's a a lot in in what uh, Farley is saying at this stage, uh, but you're reporting today that Grace's parents, uh, who are known as Mr. and Mrs. X, uh, have criminal convictions uh, and uh, they were allowed to foster children because we're not just talking about uh, Grace in these reports. There's 46 others uh, who uh, the Commission are looking at to see if uh, they were subjected to, to abuse. Uh, tell us about the convictions that the parents had. Yeah, so good morning. Um, yeah, so um, Grace's foster parents um, came from, had spent some time in the, in the UK and had come over and settled in the southeast. Um, and the, due to a kind of a chronic shortage of placement at the time, when Grace had moved from the Dublin area down uh, to, to the southeast, she had essentially been offered up to the, into the care of the state by her natural mother, who was not in a position to look after her, uh, given she, was, she herself was only a teenager when Grace was born. Uh, she was not married herself, and obviously, given the severity of Grace's intellectual disability, she just wasn't in a position to, 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 look, to take care of her. So Grace was placed in, in, into the care of the state, uh, and ultimately, um, this foster family, uh, despite having... Um, Criminal convictions for larceny and theft. Um, they, they, they were, they were, or Grace was placed into into their care. She was the fam, foster family's first ever placement. However, over that period, um, as you said in your introduction, forty six or forty seven in total went through the house. Concerns were, were raised a number of years later when the Brothers of Charity organisation from the United Kingdom, um, you know, who, who had some sort of a, an association and link uh, with this family for respite care. Um, raised concerns over an allegation of abuse against the foster father. Um, this allegation was made known to health officials here, uh, and in 1996, an initial decision was taken by health officials to remove Grace out of the, the, the foster home on two grounds. One, because of this allegation of abuse, which obviously was seen as quite serious, and two, there was concerns around the capacity of the foster family to, to, to meet Grace's needs. However, as we know, and this has been the subject of of great controversy, Mm. a letter sent by the Foster family to the then Health Minister Michael Noonan um, uh, kind of happened 
before a controversial decision was taken to reverse Grace's removal from that home. That was from the father to the minister at the time. Yeah, to the minister. Mm -hmm. And ultimately Grace, um, following following that decision to leave her in the home, she ultimately stayed in that home uh, for another 13 years. Uh, despite those allegations being being in circulation, now what the reports, the commission reports, which are not are not published yet, they're due to be published uh, in the coming days. What what they have found is that they they um, basically give Michael Noonan and Austin Curry a kind of a, a, a they, they partially clear or clear them saying what they did was essentially in accordance with accepted custom and practice at the time, and basically said they found no evidence of them kind of abusing the process or intervening to reverse that decision directly. Ultimately what they conclude is it was a decision for the South Eastern Health Board to, to make that decision and ultimately it was them and them alone who did so. However and this is very, very important. The Commission states very clearly they got no evidence or were offered no rationale from the HSC or from the, anyone who was working in the South Eastern Health Board at the time as to why that decision to leave Grace in the home was taken. And that, to me, is a massive open question in relation to the report and to the decision-making because clearly people who were involved with their case should have had knowledge or were, should remember what happened and there's, there's a big question mark as why are there no notes? Mm. Why is there no why is there no paper trail in relation to that decision to to relieve her in the home? Because we know that she was subjected uh, to severe neglect at least, and okay. there's very strong suspicions of abuse, and that's ultimately what the commission mm. is. As, as I understand it, there's medical evidence of uh, abuse, uh, but that has to be established as yet by the commission. And you reported today that they'll be reporting on those concerns at a, a later date. But we have mm. to keep in mind that Grace was. The, the the most vulnerable type of person uh, because uh, she was non-verbal and uh, suffered uh, quite a, a number of disabilities and left in foster care. Uh, that letter from Mr X, the foster uh, father, uh, to Minister Noonan uh, is published in the Irish Examiner today. You have that letter and you've published it. Uh, and you are also reporting uh, that the former minister uh, has uh, told to the Commission that he never saw that letter. Yeah, so obviously the Commission spoke to not only Michael Noonan, they spoke to some of his former staff in the Department of Health at the time, his private secretary, his secretary general, and other kind of leading officials. And there, there's some examination as to how representations of this kind are normally handled, and also as well what happens if, you know, what happens to letters such as this when a minister kind of does... Uh, uh, express an opinion and ultimately there there was a kind of a big back and forth in the report as to whether or not Michael Noonan would have seen the, the letter or not seen the letter um, and uh, ultimately what the, the commission has concluded is that you know uh, they didn't see him as having any direct hand or part in that however what is clear uh, from my reading of all of this is that that um, letter from Mr X in the initial stage, did delay the decision. There was a delay over the summer months because that letter was sent uh, kind of in the midsummer. There was a delay until the end of the summer uh, in terms of uh, leaving Grace. And then ultimately in October, a decision not to remove Grace was taken at a case conference. And ultimately, as I said, no evidence or rationale was offered up from the HSC or the, or the health officials as to why that happened. Mm. And that to me is a glaring omission. That, that to me is a big gaping hole in, in, in the report's findings. Yeah. 
Uh, and what happened to Grace uh, because uh, she wasn't removed from the home and indeed uh, the 46 other children uh, who would have been fostered by these people, obviously of huge concern. We know quite uh, a bit uh, about that at this stage. Uh, undoubtedly, there'll be more when the Commission makes it its final report. But in the interim reports, there is very strong criticism, is there not, of the South Eastern Health Board. Uh, you're reporting today uh, that uh, they uh, w- would have been or should have been aware of the level of neglect that uh, Grace was subjected to uh, and that uh, it wasn't acted on. No, no, it wasn't. Uh, and, you know, the, there are deeper concerns in relation because for several years, Grace had no assigned uh, social worker to her case. There was, for several years, no visits to the foster home took place when Grace was in, in its care. Um, there were gaping holes in relation to how Grace would be handled once she became an adult. You know, there was discussions around should she become a ward of court or what was her legal status. You know, key officials who were in charge of her did not know or realise their legal responsibilities or duties. They did not know. They were not familiar with the legislation. They were not familiar as to who or who had the responsibility for taking charge of Grace. Um, and ultimately, that was a huge failing because ultimately it meant she languished there in that home. And what was happening at the same time as all of this confusion and kind of inaction on behalf of, of officials, her health was deteriorating significantly. There were concerns around if she needed um, what is, was described as significant dental work. So her her personal hygiene had deteriorated to such a degree. When she, she There were large absences from her daycare centre, which obviously led to concerns being raised. And then also as well, and, you know, there were instances of inappropriate stripping, which either didn't go properly reported or were not acted upon or were dismissed. And then there were issues around marks in her body, um, pre- you know, when she was presenting at daycare. And again, ultimately, people were, were downplaying the significance of these. So telltale signs all along the way were either being missed or were being ignored. And, and ultimately, as I said, it was only much, much later in 2009 when mm. serious injuries to Grace's body were discovered did act, was action taken. Um, but, you know, that was thirteen yeah. full, full 13 years after that you know, initial decision yeah. to take her into the house was reversed. Yeah. And uh, seven years uh, after she had arrived, she arrived in uh, 1989, uh, and uh, that should have only been a temporary foster placement, uh, but she was there then for the full... 20 years uh, she was released uh, from that environment in 1996 uh, and indeed uh, this has uh, been uh, on the uh, public radar for a number of years now just remind us uh, how, how long this is going on because uh, there was a, a settlement a redress paid to, to Grace uh, again you're reporting this in uh, the examiner today 6.3 million in 2016 from the HSE but when was the Farley Commission set up and when is it due to make it its final report okay so yeah so ultimately um uh, a number of years ago, <clears throat> there was um, the Public Accounts Committee essentially uh, had been kind of uh, approached by a whistleblower uh, in relation to Grace's case, and ultimately it came into the public domain in the mainstream uh, through through that sort of that route. There had been kind of reports done and commissioned by the HSE into Grace's care. There obviously had been over the years some involvement with the Angarda Shia Kona, um, but ultimately it was concluded on foot of reporting by ourselves in the Irish Examiner and by others, including Colin Mungon and RTE, um, that there was a, a need for a commission of investigation to be established. That was done by the outgoing Fine Gael and Labour government just before um, the, the, the collapse of that government in 2016. And it was ultimately Fine McGrath 
who moved it and formally established the Faraday uh, Commission later in 2016. It was due to conclude its work by 2018. However, they've they've sought and, and obtained a number of extensions between then and now. Mm. And what there is kind of it, it's fair to say that patience within government is, is kind of running is running thin. Uh, so they've been granted one final extension to conclude its work, and that's going to deal with that those allegations of abuse, not just in relation to Grace, but to all the, all of the other um, individuals in the home, um, and they're due to conclude their work by next July. Okay, can I just ask you one final question, Daniel? I don't know if you know the answer to this, uh, but it is. Sh- Shocking, I think, uh, to think uh, that people who have criminal convictions can foster children. Uh, does that continue to be the case? No, I think, I think, I think. My understanding is, is that there's a far greater level of oversight and kind of vetting that goes on now uh, than probably went on. What was very clear, uh, Michael, at the, you know, at the time there was a, a chronic shortage of places in the in the southeast area, and that ultimately, I let, I think, led to these people who clearly were. My read of it and my read from previous reports is that they, they saw this as a way of, of, of making money as, as earning an income um, and they sought to, to do so. And they not only just did it through the state uh, in terms of the health board, but they were doing it on a private capacity and they were also doing it through various charitable, charitable organisations. So they saw this as a kind of a money-making exercise. Um, but from a state's perspective, you know, their duty was to, to grace, not necessarily to the, to the provider. And ultimately, it's my, it's, it's my understanding that, uh, you know, proper checks weren't put in place and they were allowed to take her despite those criminal convictions. Okay, that's why we are where we are. Daniel, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Daniel McConnell, political editor with uh, the Irish Examiner. Let me just bring you some of the comments that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, the homeowners in Donegal will be going to the Dáil today uh, protesting over the homes uh, that are, are falling down around them and Sheila was in touch with us saying she thinks that the homeowners impacted by the MICA scandal should be fully compensated 100% redress she says it's so unfair what they've been through so far nobody should have to deal with stuff like that when all they want to do is to provide a roof over their heads for their families uh, Tom in touch with us about that saying a cap should be put on the amount of money paid out to each family. Otherwise, how on earth will the taxpayer be able to afford the final bill? Uh, another call that comes, it's from uh, WhatsApp, actually, a text that comes to us uh, from uh, Eugene, who's in Dundalk. Thanks uh, for your text, Eugene. I think maybe we'll send this one on to Fergus O'Dowd, <laughs> because I think Fergus O'Dowd uh, has often uh, wondered if we're fair to Fergus O'Dowd, but Eugene in Dundalk says, Fergus O'Dowd has clean boots now that Michael has finished licking them, but of course you won't read that comment out. Well, uh, I had to uh, wash my mouth out before I got to read it, uh, Eugene, but thank you indeed. I'm sure Fergus O'Dowd will be delighted to read it when we send it on to him as well. Thank you indeed for making comment with us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now back uh, to the levels of pay for the low paid in uh, this country. The minimum wage is 10.20 an hour and as you heard yesterday, the new living wage early rate is 12.90 an hour. That's an increase of 60 cents. Let's talk to Michael Taft, who's a researcher with sip and a member of the Living Wage Technical Group, which sets the living wage. And a very good morning to you, Michael, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Uh, just remind us how you come up with this figure uh, of uh, the hourly rate that you consider to be enough to live on, uh, uh, or a minimum, if you like, uh, in terms of being able to live with decency. The living wage technical 
Circle Group builds on the work of the Vincentian Partnership, who constructs what's called a minimum expenditure standard of living. And this is based on two processes. One, uh, <clears throat> there is, um, every few years, there is a very, uh, there's an extensive focus group polling of uh, different types of households, whether it be a single person household, a single parent, a couple, uh, uh, pensioners. And what they do is they, they ask them, essentially, what they believe is necessary to create, you know, to ha- the necessary items to have what's a minimal socially acceptable standard of living. That is then combined with more objective measurements, uh, such as the level of rents, which would be taken from the uh, uh, residential board, the, the tenancy board, uh, and uh, things like insurance or uh, taxation uh, or uh, medical card supports and things like that. And so you combine these two and you come up uh, with this figure of uh, the living wage. All right, uh, and uh, twelve ninety an hour. What's that uh, on an annual basis? Around twenty six thousand. It's about twenty six, twenty seven thousand. Okay, uh, and uh, that's not bad. Some would say, especially if they're on ten twenty. Uh, there is uh, some companies uh, who pay the living wage, though, uh, that uh, people may not have expected to be the case. There's uh, a number of supermarkets who pay their staff the living wage, uh, fast food companies, for that matter, uh, who people may have thought would be on the minimum wage. What happens when you reset the annual uh, living wage hourly rate? Do those companies automatically follow in line? Uh, many of them would actually. The living wage technical group is in contact with many companies, uh, and uh, you know the companies try to get a sense of what what is looking forward. Uh, there's also a mechanism in the uh, calculation of the living wage that it doesn't significantly increase by any one year, so that we try to smooth out any increases over two or three or four years because you know a sharp jump. You know, companies wouldn't be able to, uh, abide, uh, you know, wouldn't be able to uh, follow that sharp jump. Now, I, but I think the point you make is correct, insofar as that many companies are doing it anyway. Uh, they're doing it for two reasons. Uh, one, of course, there's a staff shortage in many of these areas, and uh, therefore they increase the wages, they increase the working conditions to attract uh, attract people uh, mm. to come and work for them. Uh, and secondly, there's a growing recognition that uh, you know a business model that is based on low pay is in the long term unsustainable. So the better companies, even say in the retail or hospitality mm-hmm. sector, which are traditionally low wage, uh, you know, strive to provide those type of pay and working conditions uh, for their uh, for their employees, so that they don't have a high turnover, they don't incur considerable recruitment and retention costs, and we're seeing this emerge more and more throughout the economy. Yeah, and it's good for business, I imagine, uh, because it's very good publicity. People don't like the idea of shopping or eating in sweat houses uh, and uh, when they hear that uh, the living wage is being paid uh, they may be more inclined to bring their custom there rather than somewhere where it's not being paid and no doubt that's why some of these companies shouted from the rooftops that they are paying the living wage. 
absolutely. I think there's uh, more of an appreciation, especially after the pandemic, because uh, during the pandemic, a lot of people whose work, you know, if, you, if we can put it this way, people saw the, the looked at them but didn't see them. They didn't see their work. They didn't see the value of that work. Everything from, uh, <clears throat> you know, retail workers uh, to waste bin collectors uh, to people who, you know, who select your food and drive up and bring it to your doorstep. I think there was a greater appreciation of that type of work. And, you know, companies more and more are trading uh, on their brand. You know, that is a movement going throughout so many sectors. And they realize that their uh, uh, brand and the, 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 the reputation that they have as a company in the community is just as important as things like pricing and service and, and you know, those, those type of traditional kind of business indicators. Mm. But let's also be clear, increasing, the, uh, increasing wages, and especially for those on low pay, increases business income as well. It does two things. It increases business income because, you know, this money doesn't go into a black hole. Yeah. I mean, especially for those on low pay, they're not likely to save it. They're likely to spend it. So it actually gets recycled back uh, into the community. So there's a higher revenue base, but also there's a reduction in costs. Uh, and if you look at, for instance, areas like childcare, where there's 40% uh, uh, turnover a year, that incurs enormous costs on uh, employers, similarly with the hospitality sector. And that is why many companies, uh, uh, you know, go out of their way to pay the living wage so that they can reduce those costs. And they're very proud to announce, and, you know, they meet with people like the Living Wage Technical mm. Group or the Low Pay Commission, and they say, listen, our staff turnover is only like 4 or 5 or 6%. Mm. We're very proud of that. Mm. Uh, not only because it shows a good treatment of the employees, but also it reduces costs. Yeah, okay. And uh, I think that leads to good morale, and good morale usually leads uh, to enthusiastic workers uh, who are more productive and that sort of thing. And if I'm right in what I'm saying uh, about uh, it leading to better custom and more business, uh, well, then that's a, a, a win-win-win situation. Uh, is it right, though, that people will shop in shops that they feel aren't sweat houses? Uh, and is that because they've heard that they're paying the living wage? I, we don't, you know, we don't have any data on that. We only have mm. anecdotal uh, information, okay. uh, which, which we, uh, we believe is the case. Now, well, I, just, I suppose what I was... There's a lot of households mm. that can't afford that. They really do have to look for the lowest priced uh, items, whether it's goods or services. Okay, but some of those shops that are, are charging the lowest of prices are paying the living wage. Uh, what I wanted to ask you really, Michael, though, was does it follow that if companies aren't paying the living wage, are they sweatshops? Are the workers being exploited? If somebody is on less than €27,000, are they being exploited by their employer? I wouldn't use the word exploited. What we can say is that for a single full-time uh, employee, they are probably getting less. There is a risk of them getting less than what is the minimal standard. However, there's other elements that go into what makes a what we call a good workplace. It may well be that an employer is struggling. It may well be that they're in a very uh, uh, a very low margin uh, uh, sector. But if also that employer employer uh, you know pursues what we would call in situ mm. uh, an agenda of respect so 
therefore they negotiate with the trade unions. They have flexibility for their workers. If, you know, yeah. uh, somebody's child is sick, can they take off for a day or two to be with them? Uh, so there, there's many other elements than just in pay. You cannot, def- you cannot reduce exploitation mm. just to pay. Okay, no, but I you'd expect a highly profitable company to be paying at least the minimum wage, or the living wage, I beg your pardon, at twelve ninety an hour, 26,500 euro a year. Sorry, that you would expect a profitable company yeah. to do that. Of course. Yeah. I mean, okay. I'm only talking about mm. those uh, yeah. those sectors and those businesses, especially coming out of the pandemic, mm. who may be struggling to get back uh, up on their feet, to get back to pre-pandemic Un- Unless levels. they're clinging on by the skin of their teeth, uh, it, it, it's uh, wrong not to be paying uh, something like that, uh, in other words. Would that be it? Unless they're uh, clinging on by the skin of their teeth uh, to stay in business, uh, there's something wrong if they're not paying at least 1290. Well, it it does mean, uh, yes, there is something wrong. Mm. It's either something wrong with the the uh, uh, the way the company treats its employees uh, and may be wrong with their management style. Uh, that is why uh, uh, not not only are we just kind of looking for a certain benchmark like 1290, but mm. obviously other aspects of that. But that's why the trade union movement has uh, uh, called upon employers to come back in and negotiate so that both sides can sit down, especially in the traditional low-paid sectors mm. like hospitality and retail, both sides can sit down, assess the problems that each side has, and come up with a solution. In other words, the stakeholders should be involved in charting the course for the businesses and for the sector as a whole over the years to come. And you say that any of the increases over the seven years since uh, the living wage was first calculated in 2014 has been as a result of increases in rent uh, because inflation has been flat. Uh, we're looking into a, a period of a very serious increase or significant increase, quite possibly, in inflation. Uh, so I take it uh, that over the course of uh, the next 12 months, we'll see uh, an even more significant increase than that 60 cent over the course of the last year. Yes, that, that, that is a big fear. Um, uh, as you say, in 2014, the, the living wage was 11.45. Now it's 12.90. That is down to one thing, and that's rent. If the uh, if rents had kept pace with uh, the, you know inflation in the economy with the rest of the price of goods and services, the living wage would have actually fallen. It would have been below eleven euros. It would have been you know much closer to the minimum wage. So we need to get the rents under control. We need to get the housing under control because if we don't, uh, this year's this year's calculation did not pick up the rise in household energy costs. You know the rise in gas and electricity. Uh, prices, but next year it will. So if you have household energy prices rising, which, by the way, impact on low-income households more than high-income, combined with rent, you will have a perfect storm of, uh, of, of uh, prices getting out of control and people really struggling because their wages can't uh, uh, match the price of inflation. Okay. Michael, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always. Michael Taft, SIP2 researcher and a member of the Living Wage technical group. Thanks to Kieran, who's been in touch asking if Fergus O'Dowd lives in the real world at all. What about the huge number of homeless people and the amount of people living in temporary accommodation in hotels and all around the country? What is being done to help them? Because it feels like they're being ignored by government. It's all right for our public representatives with their huge salaries and large pensions. They don't have the same financial worries as the rest of
of us. Thanks indeed, Kieran. Uh, I'm going to dare to uh, reply in Ferguson O'Dowd's behalf uh, because in the context of the conversation we were having about data centres, uh, I presume the deputy would say, well, they're trying to create jobs. Uh, which would take people out of those situations. Alan in touch with us saying that we, he can't believe uh, that we're facing into uh, the winter with uh, the threat of blackouts hanging over our heads. It's worse this country is getting, he says. How has government allowed it to get to this stage? How have they not foreseen the problem and taken the appropriate course of action to address it? Thank you indeed as well for your call to the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we're going to talk a, a little bit about the housing crisis and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the politics of the housing crisis. Shook, you, um, you're big on numbers, big on targets and very, very low on delivery. That's the reality. And y- you can't actually spoof your way out of this one because I have a reply from your minister dated the 21st of this month, which makes it clear that the sum total of eight affordable homes for purchase will be delivered by the end of this year. Eight. At a time. Well, you know that. And I'm not a surprise, but I have to tell you, it's a surprise. It's It's a surprise to people who are are looking to put a roof over their heads. We have a housing emergency. You have said that housing policy will be front and centre, that you understand the depths of this emergency, when you clearly don't. You sat there in a a state of self-satisfaction when eight affordable homes, no more than eight, will be delivered by the end of this year. I think that is scandalous. I think you ought to be ashamed, Taoiseach, that this is your record in government. Right, that's uh, Mary Lou Macdonald, Sinn Féin President, and uh, the Taoiseach Micheál Martin in the Dáil yesterday. Let's uh, talk to local Sinn Féin TD, Rory O'Murku in Louth and East Mead. And uh, a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on in the programme. Morning, that certainly does sound shocking, if not scandalous. Just eight by the end of the year. Didn't see it on any of the front pages uh, this morning. Why is that? Was it a surprise? to Mary Lou Macdonald. Well, I, I think, as Mary Lou Macdonald said, it was definitely a surprise to anybody that thinks the government is putting housing front and centre. I think what it also points out is, if you know, the previous government and rebuilding Ireland and whatever wondrous and wonderful plans they had obviously didn't come anywhere close to even the delivery that was promised. Um, I, I think there, it was... There was, the government back in October 2018 announced a housing fund of 310 million and the whole idea was that it would deliver 6,200 homes to rent or buy and that was over a three year period and now we're looking at no delivery in 1920 uh, and then we'll have eight affordable homes by 2021 and look we, we've had housing for all we had the debate in relation to it yesterday and yeah there are figures in there there's an element as well of uh Figures will also contain what's anticipated from uh, private developer delivery, which is absolutely necessary and all the rest of it. But here, seeing is believing as regards housing. We have a huge supply issue. That's like all the other issues are connected to it. And until that's dealt with, um, we're not getting anywhere we just need it's affordable cost rental it's affordable mortgages and it's council houses mm. you know we don't need to get into the ins and outs of just the disaster that it is for anybody renting across county Louth or across this state eight eight right 
That's yeah, look, it's a, a, and I suppose it mightn't be on front pages because we do have the fact that we are facing in, and you were dealing with some of it earlier, mm. I suppose the whole question of energy supply, secure energy supply, combined with the question of um, it's all well and good. We can have all the plans we want for data centers. If we don't have the infrastructure that can supply them and the rest of us, well, then we're going to have a pr pretty difficult situation, not only for ourselves, but I'm fairly sure that like, uh, technical, uh, technological companies and all the rest of it. One of the reasons that they invest here and whatever is that they would have assumed a, a security of two things: of uh, of government, of climate, and of uh, energy supply. Okay. Well, I don't know. Um, the Taoiseach uh, was unfazed by the criticisms uh, that that was what was expected, uh, and indeed uh, that Mary Lou Macdonald knew the answer before she asked the question. Uh, and I suppose it's clear in the way she put the question, saying that there would only be eight and asking for confirmation. Uh, was Mary Lou Macdonald playing politics with it? Well, on some level, you try and get your political argument across, and people might can call that playing politics. I think she's pointing out, she first of all, we are putting housing front and center, and there's nobody that can't tell me that this is one of the major issues of the day, no matter what day it is, you know, given what we all get in our constituency office from representations for people who cannot access housing. Yeah, like I said myself yesterday, that a huge amount of, let's say, Sinn Féin councillors in County Loud spend a huge amount of time dealing with rental companies and all the rest of it to try and secure people housing. And here, you know, that should not be the facility of elected reps, but that's the dysfunctional market. That's the dysfunctional housing uh, situation that we're all dealing with and Mary Lou Macdonald is just po pointing out the previous government this government haven't been serious to date the pressure is on them and the other thing the Taoiseach is in an absolutely privileged position but there's also an onus and a responsibility on him first of all to answer the questions that are asked by leaders all right well let's we hear let's hear how that went uh, it, it is whether Mary Lou Macdonald knew the answer or not it's a very serious question about a very serious problem. We have such a serious housing crisis in this country. And the question that was put to the Taoiseach was, uh, will the government deliver only eight affordable housing units by the end of this year? Let's hear how the Taoiseach responded. So don't come in here feigning surprise with statistics from a PQ, which you knew the answer to already. You knew that. But this is about you exploiting the housing crisis for your ends. It's not about genuinely trying to help people who need housing. All you are about, Deputy, and have consistently been about, is exploiting the housing crisis for your electoral gain. Ken Corla, can, can, I, can I just inquire and ask for your guidance as, as Cohirlock in this House? The objective of this session is the questions are put to the Taoiseach ah, and the yes, Taoiseach please. attempts, yeah, yeah. No, no, to the best of his ability, yes, however please. limited that Thank might you, be, Deputy. to answer the questions. We're not going to have a debate, Deputy, please. Um, I, I don't please. believe that it, it please, ought to Deputy. be for the head of government please, Deputy. Um, to, bring, Deputy, to go back. off on a diversion. You're bringing the House into disrepute. Look, I resume my seat. What brings this House into disrepute is that kind of blather that we have had to listen to for the last month, with no answer. To very Please resume your seat, Deputy. All right, uh, that's uh, Mary Lou Macdonald uh, 
somewhat out of sorts uh, with uh, how the Taoiseach responded to her. What we didn't hear was uh, Michal Martin say Sinn Féin objected to this planning application and that planning application. Uh, uh, but uh, I think uh, there's a lot of truth in what Mary Lou Macdonald was saying at the same time, which was that he, he didn't really address the issue of how few uh, affordable housing units were going to be delivered by the end of uh, the year. This is a, a non-going issue between Sinn Féin and indeed uh, the Taoiseach and the Taunashev for that matter when questions are, are put to the leadership of the government uh, suddenly the conversation seems to stem on Sinn Féin uh, in many negative uh, respects rather than addressing the questions that are being put to them. Mary Lou Macdonald seemed to be taking issue yesterday Rory Omuraku, will it go any further than that? Well, it's it's not exactly shocking to anyone who has listened to leaders' questions or any other of the opportunities that some of us get up here to ask questions, whether that's on promised legislation. We don't always necessarily get the answers to the questions we ask. We get diversion. We get sideshow. Um, I, I think if people were to go through debates in relation to what uh, certain members of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, including their leadership, say about us, they spend more time talking about Sinn Féin than they talk about what they have done, what they are going to do, and how they are going to solve these problems. And these are the problems that we are getting day in, day out, that, that we are absolutely aware of from our interaction with constituents, with people in our own communities. And look, as I say, these people, whether you're talking about the Taoiseach and the Taunashta, are in an absolutely privileged position. They have a responsibility to answer the questions. But I would say beyond that, particularly as regards housing, they have a responsibility to deliver for people. There's no more point calling a document or a, a plan housing for all unless it actually delivers housing for all. And that's what we're looking for. I'd be only too delighted to go in there, as I'm sure Mary Lou would, and say, that's a really sound piece of policy that's working for people that, you know what I mean? And, and that we are glad to see that. But mm. the fact well, is, we do not get those now, opportunities. Yeah, I don't think oh, no, I accept. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mm. accept. Mm. I accept there's always going to be an element of to and fro. And you're yeah. never, yes, you're never going to go in and say absolutely brilliant job. But there's no chance of it happening when you certainly aren't carrying out a brilliant job. But we will work constructively. We have made, there is no shortage of solutions that have been put forward. Like as this say in relation to Ono Brin, it's, it's more than one book he has written in relation to this. And it's beyond politics because here, see our elected mm. reps, as I said previously, are, are in rag order sometimes due to the amount of extra work that they have to do that then even had been done in previous instances because of the housing chaos that you're dealing with. And that's people who can't access rental. That's some people who can get HAP. That's some people who can't get housing assistance payment. That's even word we are getting from the local authorities mm. in relation to how the assessment yeah. process has been carried out now. But the Kieran Corley seemed happy that the questions were being addressed. In fact, uh, he suggested that Mary Lou Macdonald was bringing the house into disrepute. disrepute. Well, in, in, in fairness, the Can Corla has stood over the way this has operated for years. And I'm not sure I actually remember any time, um, whether that was looking from outside or from my short time here, where I actually saw that people went in, asked questions and got really, really good answers. And I have no difficulty with where someone gives a substantive answer. And here, if they want to take a political swipe, that's fine. But once there's some sort of meat, there's some sort of detail, and you deal with the substantive issues that are being put forward. And these are issues that 
absolutely matter to the people out there. This isn't literally a barroom conversation. Housing is what we deal with first and foremost from one end of this state to the other. As I say, whether that's just your own engagements through uh, sporting clubs, organisations, your neighbours, or whether that's the work that comes through our constituency offices or when we engage through canvassing or any other political act. Housing, housing, housing. The absolute dysfunctionality. People feel the government don't care sufficiently or they would have done something about it mm. and they have had their and multiple governments had a significant amount of time accepting there have been difficulties whether that was covid or obviously the banking crisis and other such issues but some of this we are living with bad decisions that were made okay. into not building council houses back that started in the 90s all right uh- you may be interested to hear uh, that Claire is amused by the conversation. She's saying that on one hand, we're being told to build more houses. And on the other hand, we're being told we don't have enough electricity for the houses that we already have. And uh, she might have a point. We leave it there for the moment, though. And thank you indeed. Rory uh, O'Murakou, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and Eastmeath. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Jerry Hutch uh, was uh, before the Special Criminal Court yesterday evening. A limited number of uh, journalists uh, were allowed into uh, the court, and Alison O'Reilly was one of them. Alison is on the phone now. And a very good morning to you, Alison, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Jerry Hutch, or perhaps I should say Gerard the Monk Hutch. Why is he called the Monk, do you know? Uh, it was Veronica Guerin, I think who uh, dubbed him the monk, was it? That's correct, uh, Michael. Thanks a million for having me on this morning. Yeah, um, at the time, you see, and that's still to this day, uh, unless somebody's convicted of something, um, it's you can't name them for the defamation and libel laws. And at the time, Veronica Guerin was writing about the criminal underworld. And uh, it was kind of landmark stuff she was doing. She was working for the Sunday Independent at the time. And... Um, <clears throat> She was getting in touch with a lot of these criminals. He was one of them, but again, none of them had been before the courts. They weren't known. And so she gave them all the names, the general, the monk, the viper. And that's how she was able to write about these big, large, dangerous, colourful criminals. Um, And he was given the name the monk because he didn't drink. He He went to mass every Sunday, still does. And that's why he was given that name. Okay, how was he looking in court yesterday? Did he have a tan? Because, of course, uh, he's been flown into the country from Spain. That's correct, yeah. Um, He arrived into the Special Criminal Court at around 8.15 last night and uh, had landed in Baldonnell Airport at 7.13. And he was brought in on a military air flight and escorted to the Special Criminal Court. It was an out-of-hours non-jury sitting. And uh, uh, dressed in kind of a Spanish look, he had... uh, a cream jacket on him, a linen white shirt and green corduroy trousers and a black mask on, quite tanned, very, very grey. I think people would know him as having thick black hair, very, very... Uh distinguishable figure of people would recognise Jerry the Monk. Uh, he was very well known around the time um, he had to pay a huge settlement to cab and then he set up the, the limo service and uh, he was well known for that and did loads of PR around that time But uh, and also very well known in the north inner city as well but uh, very quiet and subdued last night sitting in uh, the dock uh, with his head down and uh, at one point though he did look around the courtroom and took every single journalist in um, including myself and uh, uh, but quite a shadow look in Michael it's, yeah. it's quite a frightening experience I can imagine he's been uh, missing in action since 2016 and mm. he's finally been caught 
Man, he's in front of uh, the court on very serious charges. He is, that's correct, yeah. Um, your listeners will probably remember the Regency Hotel shooting on the 5th of February 2016 when uh, three men stormed the hotel uh, in North Dublin on the Swords Road there. Uh, three of them were dressed as uh, emergency response unit guardy carrying assault rifles and uh, a man and two men dressed as a couple, one dressed as a female, uh, were carrying handguns and they had gone into the Regency because there was a boxing weigh-in at the time attended by uh, lots of family and children uh, but it was also attended by members of the Kinahan cartel who were the targets of that shooting that day um, Daniel Kinahan being one of them he's the head of the Kinahan cartel and uh, this feud uh, which is the biggest feud in the history of the state is among two families and uh, members of the Hutch family and members of the Kinahan family who would have actually been friends uh, until this divide in 2015, Christy Kinahan Sr., who's now retired and stepped down and his sons run the, the empire, he would have been friends with Gerard the Monk. They would have served time in prison. They would have known each other. Um, and uh, there was a big divide when Gary Hutch, who was uh, uh, Jerry the Monk's nephew, uh, was shot dead in Spain in 2015 um, in a very gruesome murder and um uh, uh, he would have been friends with Daniel Kinahan and Christy Kinahan Jr. Um, and there was a split after that. And uh, the reports are that the monk had tried to settle this and to resolve this issue by paying money. But then an attempt was made on the monk's life. And uh, this huge shooting happened in the Regency. Uh, people believe at one point it was a, an ISIS-style attack. Mm. It made international headlines. It was quite frightening. Mm. And David Byrne was murdered in that shooting. Uh, those men have uh, never been uh, no one has been convicted of David Byrne's murder but there are now uh, a number of people before the court and Jerry Hutch being one of them. Quite frightening indeed terrifying some of us yeah, would say Yeah it was very, it was yeah. a terrifying mm. ordeal the Regency and yeah. uh, quite shocking images emerged from that and Jared uh, Hutch's nephew Patrick Hutch was before the court charged with murder and that case collapsed and he always pleaded mm. guilty uh, but now uh, a trial date has been set next year for the 3rd of October October 2022. And Um, terrifying for most of us, I think, Alison, sitting watching the television uh, while we're eating our our tea, as uh, the case may be, to think of what happened in the Regency or elsewhere. Uh, But all the more terrifying, uh, the idea of being involved in any way whatsoever or being called up for Mm -hmm. jury service. Now, I suppose uh, that's interesting as well, uh, because there will be no jury in the special criminal court. Yeah, so the Special Criminal Court is a non-jury sitting and uh, the presiding judge is Mr Justice Tony Hunt and he's sitting with Judge Sarah Berkeley and Judge David McHugh. The Special Criminal Court was set up for cases like this where there is no jury and the decisions are made. And I mean, last night in particular, um, you know, it's, it, it, even going into the Special Criminal Court, if you are not familiar with the court, that's a frightening experience, quite intimidating. I attended uh, Patrick Hutch's trial uh, when and he was brought before the courts over the Regency shooting as well. As I said, that trial collapsed and he pleaded uh, not guilty. Um, but going in there, there's armed Gardaí there as well. There was a very heavy presence of Gardaí last night, uh, about 13 or 14 journalists. Um, you have to show your ID going in you have to be searched going in because remember you're dealing with very mm. very serious people um, in those courts mm-hmm. and um, 
And they, a jury doesn't have to sit in front of them because that would be quite an, an intimidating experience. And it was set up for many reasons, uh, but was to deal with gangland crime and gangland figures, which is a growing escalation. It's escalating in Ireland, gangland mm. figures. Uh, you, of course, Strahada was hit with, with gangland mm. crime as well. There's no town or city now in Ireland that's escaping this. But uh, And of course, said, the, yeah, IRA, the IRA cases would have been heard in the Special Criminal Court and terrorism absolutely. and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and mm-hmm. I mean, we all know that terrible, frightening experiences can happen to ordinary members of mm. the jury and this is why these these sittings have to be um, held. But you were able matter. to walk out of the court, you were at liberty to walk out of the court, that wasn't the case for Mr Hutch, uh, he'll remain in detention uh, I take it, uh, until this hearing. Yeah, he's been represented by uh, Brendan Grehan, very famous uh, defence senior counsel and uh, he said he was going to reserve his client's position last night in order to consider a lot of matters because remember, like Jerry Hutch was flown direct from Madrid. He was arrested in Spain last year. An arrest warrant had been issued from the High Court here earlier this year and uh, Gardaí and members of the Spanish police had arrested him at a restaurant. We all saw that video. He was then held in a prison in Madrid and flown directly from Madrid mm. via a military aircraft into Baldonnell and then brought straight to the Special Criminal Court last night. And Porrick Ferry, who's his solicitor, was explaining that he has to obviously engage with his uh, client and mm-hmm. go through a number of things. One of the things he mentioned as well was, you know, the consideration of bail, which is a very serious consideration. Um, and then also to get uh, his instructions from his client. So uh, Gerard Hutch will be back before the Special Criminal Court on the 15th of October to discuss any of those matters, including okay. um, bail. And today this might make for the first episode of a uh, Netflix production. God knows, but uh, a lot of people are very interested. Thank you, indeed, yeah. Alison O'Reilly. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 